changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Sometimes get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again uh, with another edition of the Survival Podcast from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 439. It is May 20th, 2010, uh, and we are going to uh, go into a, a unique topic, something I get a lot of questions about. Uh, we talked about debt freedom yesterday, and I talked about how people that walk that path and get to debt freedom all of a sudden have this thing called surplus cash. And when they have this thing called surplus cash, at first it's pretty cool. They just uh, continue to save it. And then it starts to build up. And one day they look at it and there's 10000 or $20,000 or more. And they start to think about inflation. And they start to think about hyperinflation. And they start thinking, how do I protect this money other than leaving it in cash where it's vulnerable to inflation? And then they start asking questions like, Jack, what should I invest my money in? And I get questions about what I consider conventional and unconventional investments. Let me tell you what I consider a conventional investment, and then we'll uh, kind of move on uh, into the housekeeping. To me, a conventional investment is what most Americans do. So even though I think of gold and silver as pretty, pretty conventional, easy to buy, and individual stocks as being pretty easy to buy, when I say conventional investments, I, I generally am thinking of mutual funds uh, through the vehicles of 401k, and IRAs, and, and and that is what most Americans do. So to me, that's what's conventional. It's not about an alternative investment being something weird or freaky or, or or spooky. It's just simply about what do most people do with their money, and where are the flaws in that? What can we learn from that? So we're not most people. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about different investment vehicles as well, IRAs, 401ks, their inherent limitations and their advantages. We're also going to talk about things like gold and silver. We're going to talk about real estate. What I'm going to give you today is my view of these investments, my view of what's positive and negative about each of them. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. I don't do that. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. Let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping first. Housekeeping item number one. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you folks. Uh, sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical is run by a guy who will really look out for you, really take care of you if anything ever happens to uh, go astray. Not that that happens often. And he's got some really cool stuff. Great bags from Maxpedition, lots of other really cool stuff. And he runs a contest every month. All you got to do is click on his banner on the survivalpodcast.com, click on the Sawtooth Tactical banner, go there, fill out a form, and you might win a prize. And that contest changes a little bit every month, but it's there every month. I recommend that you do that today. Next up today is Safe Castle Royal, our other sponsor of the day. Safe Castle's awesome. They have everything you could possibly need for your prepping uh uh, needs in your prepping lifestyle. They have a tremendous assortment of everything from great long-term storage foods to water purification to camping equipment to hunting equipment to tactical equipment. You name it, they've got it. They also have a really good program called their Discount Buyers Club. 
What is that? Well, $29 one time, and for the rest of your life, you get big discounts on everything they sell on every order over and over and over again. Uh, and with a lot of the products, it's a pretty significant discount. And I've even seen cases where they're running sales, and you get a discount over the sale price. It doesn't always work out that way, but sometimes it doesn't. That's pretty daggone cool when that happens. Um, I'll tell you what, great folks to deal with over there. Vic Rontala runs that place, runs a tight ship, takes care of people, lives the lifestyle himself, folks. So another great place to do business. Also remember, if you, if you uh, join my member support brigade, uh, you'll get his lifetime membership for free. So that's another little advantage there in dealing with that particular sponsor. Next up, I want to remind you, connect with us on all of our social mediums. These include Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the forum. I'll leave it at that today. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, these include $100 worth of free ebooks. It also includes discounts from SafeCast. Like I said, you get that free discount membership. But there's about 20 other folks there you get a discount from. Also, we have a new uh, supporting member we'll be adding this week. Uh, the Ed, End the Fed coin has made a pretty big entrance into the marketplace. Great one-ounce silver coin representing the desire of the American people to take back the right to convert to, uh, to create their own currency. Uh, we will have a discount for that product coming very soon, so there will be a discount on some silver there for you. So do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. I keep reaching out. I keep looking for ways to enhance the value of that for you. Uh, what you're doing for me is you're supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main point of today's show. Let's kind of tie back in where I was in the beginning, where I was talking to you about, you know, uh, conventional versus unconventional investing. And, and what I can, again, what I consider conventional, and this is my own definition, is what the majority of the people do on autopilot. And uh, there, there's some real problems with that. And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with the investments themselves per se. It's that because they're made so easy and because you have these people that have the audacity to call themselves financial advisors when I think that none of them really deserve that title, at least very few, maybe 5% deserve that title, the rest deserve the title financial liar because they don't know dick about money, folks. They really don't. And that's as, that's as blunt as I can be. But because those people are there and because we've made the investment so easy and because we've taken the investment in the form of things like a 401k and we've blended that into the employer's uh, system of benefits for you and a guy in a suit and tie shows up and says fill out these forms and allocate your funds and do at least 1%, you should do 10 and, and things like that and it all gets put into a system, we just do it and we don't think. That's a big problem. But that's conventional investing. So, whereas 20 years ago I would have told you unconventional investing would have been things like uh, options trading, which we'll even talk a little bit about today. Uh, maybe gold and silver I would have even still put in that bucket. ETFs and uh, maybe real estate, whether it's for flipping or uh, long-term hold uh, or rental income. That those would be now I consider anything other than autopilot mutual funds unconventional. And what is the definition of unconventional by itself without the word investment after it? It's other than, other than normal. So other than people that are stock traders and, and the few people that are out there doing this stuff, it's very unconventional to actually even put your hands into your own investments anymore. Uh, people do very little with them. They just wait to be told what to do. And financial advisors generally have great advice after the fact. Let's start out with kind of 
why I think most financial advisors absolutely suck. Because they're trained to be salespeople, not to be advisors. An advisor tells you, here's your goals, here's what you want, here's what to do to get there. And the advisors out there, the financial advisors out there, do a very good job of selling you on the fact that that's what they're doing. But it's not what they're doing. And they, you cannot be getting advice from people whose advice is built upon lies. Perfect example. I, I talked to a financial advisor uh, right before the crash of the stock market and said, hey, I'm, look, I'm one, looking for somebody to help me with this. I want to insure my money and I want to get it out of high-risk stocks and I want to hedge against what's coming. And you know, the guy was telling me, you're young, don't worry about it. Typical bullshit. And then he was, then he pulls out this little chart, and you know, he showed it to me and my wife. And my wife's biting into this more than me. And he says, "Look, I want to show you something that happens even when the stock market crashes. The greatest gains are always a year or two after the crash. And he show every crash in history and these huge gains that would come back. And you're like, well, that's. A, and he says, if you don't keep investing during the downturn, you miss the greatest returns during the upturn that's always come in the past." Sounds great. Here's the problem with that. Let's say the stock market goes down by 50% tomorrow. Just I'm not predicting it. It's not going to happen. Don't freak out. Let's say it does. And you're holding $100,000. The stock market goes down by 50%. You're holding an index fund tied to the index. So you lose 50%. So how much do you have left? $50,000. You had 100 It got cut in half. You now have 50 Let's say the next year, the market has a stupendous rate of return of 50% up. That looks really good. That's like, man, I should have stayed in, right? Okay, how much money do you have now that the stock market went back up 50%? You have $75,000. Where'd your $25,000 go? It's gone. You lost it. Let me explain. When the stock market was up and you had 100000 when it cut in half, it went to 50. That's a very easy number for you to come up with. Easy to, easy to do the math. Now, I want you to just, what, what skipped for you was the 50% return up must mean we went back. It didn't mean we went back where we were. It did not mean we went back where we were. It meant it went up in value by 50%. So if you're holding $50,000 and the market increases by 50% of value, you make 50% on 50000 which is 25000 but when you look at the chart, they don't show you the value. They show you the rate of return. They show you a loss of 50% and a gain of 50% when they're doing their financial advisor salesman bullshit. So it looks like it's par. And it looks like everything from there is profit. Folks, you got a long way to go before you get back to where you were. Because on the way down, you were losing 50% of 100,000 on the way up you're only making 50% on 50,000 that's reality that's why I don't like these people let's talk about another thing why is investing always risky why is there no such thing as a 100% safe investment simply because there's no free lunch no one is going to give you a return on your money with no underlying risk. Even money sitting in the bank has underlying risk. You could say, well, we have FDIC, and they've raised it to $250,000, and your money's insured. It's insured by FDIC. What happens if the United States economy fails? 
Let's also look at it this way. You put $250,000 in the bank, you get a 1% interest rate, which is actually pretty decent right now on a regular savings account, and inflation moves at a rate of 3.5%, which is way lower than it actually is. You lose 2.5% a year. So that leads me to the next thing. Why do we invest in the first place? Because if we just hold cash, or if we hold really safe investments, not completely safe, but really, your money in the bank is a really safe investment. It's not going anywhere. The whole thing has to, and if the whole thing falls apart, pretty much everything falls apart with it. So apart from the total apocalypse, right? Money in the bank is money in the bank, and it's like money under the mattress at home with a little bit of interest on it right now. But we have that evil thing called inflation that only exists in the form that it does because somebody else in a private world called the Federal Reserve creates and manipulates our money. And they just increase the money supply whenever the debt gets too big for them. That way they can use the extra money to pay back the debt and devalue the debt because they make the money worth less. See, that's what inflation is. Inflation is not prices going up. It's your money becoming worth less. Not worthless, worth less than it was before. See, prices rising is totally different. Prices rising is driven by one thing and one thing only, supply and demand. So if there's only a hundred of an object and somebody buys ten of them, the remaining ninety will probably go up in price because there's a finite supply as long as there's more than ninety buyers. Makes sense? So the only time we have prices rise without inflation is where there's a shortage in the supply and demand curve. And the only time prices really fall is also when there is a reverse shortage in the supply-demand curve. There's more sellers than there are buyers. That fundamental economic principle exists in our society today. It's just manipulated with inflation on top of it. Inflation makes prices go up when there's no disturbance of the supply and demand curve. There is no shortage of Wonder Bread. None. There hasn't been for 50 years, but the price of a loaf of Wonder Bread has gone up every year. Now, other than in the middle of a, of a, a disaster when the store shelves get stripped, have you ever been to the store and, and looked for Wonder Bread, if they sell it where you live, and not found it? No. In fact, many loaves of Wonder Bread are thrown away every day because they sit on the shelf past their expiration date. So no shortage. There's no supply-demand curve that's out of whack. But yet the price goes up because the value of the money goes down. And that brings me to the point. That's why we invest in the first place. If our money held its value, then we would not need to invest, or we would not need to invest as much. Investing would become a piece of what we do instead of everything that we do. That's what I think it should be anyway. But what I mean by that is, it would be very easy if we didn't have inflation for you to take your savings and allocate 25% of the savings to investing, to make it risk capital. Maybe of that 25% of your savings, you take 10% of it and make it into high-risk capital. You take the other 90 and you put the solid investments. That was the way that people invested, smart people, from middle income to very wealthy, for a very long time, until we got into a system in this country where the money manipulators were devaluing the currency through inflation. At that point, it was no longer possible for Granny to just stick some mattress money underneath her mattress every month 
And when she was old, lift the mattress up and go, look, we can live now. We got enough. Right? Not that I think it's a safe place for your money, because when houses burn, so do mattresses. But you get my point. It used to be the case where you could just save money in a jar, in a safe. It didn't matter. That money held its value. So if you spent 40 years of your life working, it was reasonable to save up enough money to take you through another 20 to 30 years of retirement when you had no house payment, you had no car payment, your cost of living had declined. And it worked. And if you took some of that money and were smart, put some in the bank and got a decent little return on that, and maybe you did buy a little bit of gold or silver, and you maybe invested in uh, a small company here and there, and you did that, a few shares of stock in a big company like AT&T when that first came out, or any of these big companies back in the day when you actually bought like five shares and got a certificate for it, right? But once inflation kicks in, now we're put into a position where... No matter how much money we, we seem to make, if we want to maintain any semblance of our lifestyle at retirement, we have to put some at risk. Because if we don't put some at risk, the money will devalue. That's the only reason we invest. It's important that you understand that. Let's talk about the most conventional investment out there, the mutual fund. Whether it's in, a, in an IRA, a 401k, or just being purchased directly. Let's talk about what a mutual fund actually is. Let's, let me tell you first... How a mutual fund is described to you by your financial liar. I won't call them advisors anymore today. They're financial liars. What they'll tell you is, yeah, this is a great fund. What this company does is they go out and they research these companies. In fact, they even send people in to look at the way these companies function on the inside. Sometimes they even hire people to be short-term employees to get an inside look at the company. And only then do they select these companies and make them part of this portfolio for this mid-cap fund or this large cap fund or this growth in whatever it is, right? And they, you know, they buy a hundred different companies. Now look, Tom, you would never be able to have a portfolio with a hundred different companies in it. The beauty of this hundred different company approach is if two of them get in really bad shape, you know, the, the fund manager can look at them, make a determination, sell them off and replace them or buy more stock in the other companies that are doing well. And always mitigate your risk across those hundred companies versus having one company and having all the inherent risk in that company. And these are experts. They know what to do. They know when to buy. They know when to sell. Okay. That's not entirely untrue, but it's damn sure not entirely true. And it damn sure gives you the wrong picture of how a mutual fund works. This is how a mutual fund actually works. A mutual fund is tightly regulated, which means if they are a company that's selling a mutual fund that says this is a mid-cap fund, there's a very specific definition of what size company and what type of stock makes up a mid-cap stock. That fund is required to hold a certain percentage, a very high percentage of mid-cap stocks. Period. End of story. The person managing that fund when the market was crashing could not absolutely could not look at the market crashing sell a bunch of the underlying stocks and put some portion of the fund's money into cash or into anything other than more mid-cap stocks now if all the mid-cap stocks are headed to the floor what can the mutual fund manager do Absolutely, positively nothing except execute sell orders. Sell orders come because the person holding the mutual fund says, holy crap, I'm losing my retirement, and they phone up the company and they say, sell all of my stock. Sell it. 
I want my fund money out. You've already lost. I don't want to lose any more. Give me my money. And when thousands and thousands and thousands of people do that at the same time, the fund's value, because it's being sold faster than bought, back to supply and demand, the fund's value starts dropping, but something else is happening. So there's a huge, massive surplus of people selling the fund. The fund manager has to sell the underlying stocks. So that creates a surplus of stocks being sold. Of course, the fund is still holding many shares in those companies because they can't just liquidate two companies. They've got to kind of spread it out. So as they spread that out, they devalue the stock inside the fund. So the stocks, the, the fund falls itself just from being dumped. The stocks in the fund fall from being dumped, and that drags the fund further down, and everybody loses. This is, this is what happens with mutual funds. Now, you might think because of that, I'm going to tell you mutual funds are the devil. I'm not. I'm going to tell you they're not the autopilot investment the financial liar told you they are. Okay? You have to watch them. This is why two years ago I said, get your money out of the stock market. I didn't say pull it out of your 401k or your IRA. I said, move it. You're in the IRA. You got a bunch of mutual funds. Sell them now. Put them in the cash and wait. You're going to get a great buying opportunity in the future. This market is going to fall through the floor. And it did. Now, people like Dave Ramsey, who I love his advice on debt elimination, but I despise his advice on investing, said all through that, just keep buying. It's going on sale. It's on a discount. But holding it was foolish at that point. Now, to be fair to Dave Ramsey, he's on a ton of radio stations. He's on TV. He can't go out with his audience at his size and start saying, liquidate your money. Liquidate, because if he does it, he'll lose every sponsor that he has. Because a guy with that much clout can actually create a drop in the market by telling everybody to sell. So I'll give him a little bit of leeway. But when individuals called in to him and said, hey, I, I'm kind of concerned about this. I have 100000 or $400,000, and I think maybe I should move something. And he said, don't, don't worry about it. That, that bothered me. In spite of the fact that I'm very supportive of him otherwise, that bothered me. I'm telling you, you have to time the market. Now, people like Ramsey, people like all of these folks out there, Susie Orman, who I don't like. I don't like, I, I, I can't stomach that woman. Uh, Jim Cramer, I'd like to tie a brick around his neck and toss him off the Brooklyn Bridge with it. Um, these people often say you can't time the market with your investments. Uh, not your long, you know, Cramer has the mad money thing where, you know, you have your money that's set aside for high risk and, and, and you know, you're going to play that market. But even Kramer, when you pull him down to the individual investors, says, hey, long-term money, you don't time markets. You, you just keep doing it over time, and you're patient, and you understand that markets go up over time, and if you stay with good solid, just like that. And they all say that. The problem with that is, again, $100,000, the market drops by 50%, goes back up by 50%, you just lost $25,000. And how many times has that happened over your 40 years if you don't time the market? Well, what the experts supposedly say is you can't time the market. That's trading. I'm not into trading. Trading is, you know, I'm going to buy high, sell, you know, buy low, sell high, do that today, do that tomorrow, throw some options on top of some things, uh, do some currency conversion, uh, currency arbitrage. That's trading. I'm not into trading. I'm into investing. Well, I'm investing too. I'm big into investing. And I'm big into investing for the long haul. But when you've invested for the long haul long enough that you have significant risk, and every indicator in the world is saying this market is about to go off a cliff, you get out. That's not trading. That's market timing. You're timing a trend, 
and you're just abstaining from the risk during a period of time. There's another way to look at this. Let's say that you have over one year a 40% rate of return on your investments. 40% up. It happens. It happened very recently, actually, if you went in at the bottom and, and, and pulled out at the top. Let's say that in your financial plan, based on your investing, how much money you're putting in every month and what your, your needs are going to be when you retire, that you need to make a rate of return of 10% a year. Okay? This is hard for people to grasp, but it's one of the most important things you can learn. And there's an investment advisor named Jim Wiggin up in North Texas that taught me this, and he's one of the few advisors I kind of like. And um, what he said is, well, you've made 40 points. You're good for four years. Back the risk off during those four years with the money you made the 40% on. See, I could take that money now. I could put it into cash, right? Uh, I could put it into something very stable that pays me, let's say, a guaranteed rate of return of 5%, okay? And you can do that. Now, if I make 5% a year, I'm 5% under my delta, but I'm good for four years. At the end of four years, I've made 20%. I'm good for two more years with that money on meeting my goals, have you ever heard a financial advisor talk that way? No. Don't pull the money out. Don't talk. You see, sometimes it's not even time in the market because you think it will go down. It's your time in the market because you know sooner or later it's going to go down and you've already pulled enough profit out that you need to protect some of it. So there's a lot of ways to consider market timing in the equation. Part of market timing is if you're 55 and you've got a lot of money at risk, you're wrong. And if you were 55 when this happened and your advisor, your liar, let that happen to you, he should be beaten with a freaking sock full of wood screws. Seriously. Why do we have people 55, 60, 65 years old, highly leveraged into high-risk investments right now? It's absolutely... I'll tell you why. Because of the crash of 2000. That's why. Because they were just getting it back. And they got hit again. Over and over and over this cycle happens. Because we listen to these people who say, don't time things. Of course you time things. But time the major trend. Don't try to try time day to day. You have to educate yourself for that. When I see the big ugly coming again, I'll tell you. But remember, it's up to you to figure out if you think I'm wrong and it's coming faster. You have to make your own decisions. I want to talk about individual stocks for a minute. And... The, the converse story versus a mutual fund. The advisors generally steer you to mutual funds because they usually make pretty good commissions on that. If they're a fee advisor, they get uh, a fee no matter what they do, and it's easy to put you into mutual funds. And even a lot of guys that say they only make fees, there's always some back end that can be made for most people. Not, I, not, I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's not always. Many times the person that claims to be a fee-only advisor, which means you pay him for his advice, whether you take it or not, Right? And you're not paying him a commission, he's not making a management fee. Many of those people still have the potential to make a back-end riff. Not all. I was very wrong to say that. I apologize. But I do know there's some. Stocks, on the other hand, are things that people generally pay more attention to. 
So if you're in a mutual fund and the market's ebbing and flowing up and down, up and down every day, you just kind of let it ride. If you're holding Chevrolet stock and you hear that the government's about to take it over, you kind of freak out. If you're holding Dr. Pepper stock and you find out somebody found a thumb in one in Indiana, you kind of freak out. Well, if I'm an investment advisor, I'd prefer you don't freak out over a news story about Dr. Pepper. It's easier to have you in a mutual fund. Where's the investment advisor right? If I'm holding Dr. Pepper stock and that thumb is found in Indiana and the stock value does drop, unlike a mutual fund, I'm not protected against that. I'm going to lose the value of that stock dropping for as long as it stays down. Now, if it's a thumb and a can of soda, it's probably going to be a really good opportunity for me to buy a bunch more. If I was holding Dr. Pepper stock and it cut in half because somebody found one thumb and one can, I would buy a bunch more stock at that point because I know that's a short-term event. But if it's a major structural problem with the company, that the company is either going to be in deep trouble for or go away or be in a long-term recovery from, I might have to wait a very long time to get that money back. Where the, the advisor is right when he tells you in a mutual fund that's holding Dr. Pepper stock and it's got 100 stocks equally distributed, which never works out that way, but just say it did, and the stock for Dr. Pepper goes down by 50%, you effectively would lose half of a percent. And that's it. And if any other stock on that same day went up, you could offset it. If two or three went up, you could really offset it and never even see the loss. Because that is an event that only affected one company. The problem is that as long as you're, not the problem, but the other side of this, as long as you're picking companies that are structurally and financially sound and in the right sectors, it's generally not the case that they have one thing that affects them that's a long-term problem. Right, they lose a good CEO or something you might consider dumping it. You usually see stocks fall when that happens. But who's taking over? It's something else to look at. You've got to look deeper and research these things. The key is individual stocks take more research and effort. So they're not a good mass product for mass sales for a whole group of people we call financial advisors, or I call financial liars, that are trained not in investing but in relationship sales. All these people that you talk to, that you, and you go to a, a Chamber of Commerce meeting, for instance, and you meet 15 different guys that say they're financial advisors, and one works for Ameriprise, and the one works for American Express, and the other one works for Edward Jones. They're not investment advisors. Most of them know less about investing than I do. And I am not qualified to be an investment advisor and tell you what to buy and what to sell. I'm not. I won't do it. But I know more than they do. They have no business having that job and that title. They're there to sell a product, financial services. The company is providing what little advice there is in the form of prospectuses and taking a profile of you on your risk tolerance and building a cut-and-paste generic investing profile based on the different types of funds that they're putting you into. Going with stock, things are totally different. If that company does really well and its stock price goes way up, you have a much better chance of a high return. If the sector that company is in goes up, they're probably going to ride up along with it. But stocks require you to think more often and to trade more often. Not to be a trader, but to trade more often. You do have to pay attention to things like, did they just lose their senior strategic person for their marketing department and have they replaced him with a weak candidate? See, with a CEO or a COO or something like that, that's major news. But that one level executive down, that's the guy that does the real work. You've got to pay attention to things like that when you're holding individual stocks. 
Um, I want to. That's all I'm going to say about individual stocks for today. It's up to you to, to pick companies. If you want to know what I've invested in since the crash, I've invested in four stocks: Home Depot, which has done well; Ford, which has done extremely well. Um, I actually invested in Citibank, which has done okay. Um, I've also dumped it. So you do what you want with that little piece of knowledge. And I invested in Southwest Airlines because they were making a profit. Um, I invested in Ford because if they returned to profitability, I bought stock at $1.11 a share that pays a dividend. We'll talk about dividends in a second. I did the same thing with Southwest Airlines because they pay dividends and their stock price was unfairly driven down during the crash. Um, Citibank I bought because they were so bailed out and so propped up, I knew that they wouldn't go any lower than they were. And um, Home Depot I bought because as I was sitting here telling everybody to be part of this this do-it-yourself revolution, gardening and, and solar and wind and building your own app buildings, I realized that during a depression that the home improvement market would be drastically improved because people would want to go out and buy their own things to do these things. And instead of depending just on the contractor market, which was highly cyclical, they would move out greater than they've ever been before into the consumer market. And every time I go to uh, the lumber department or the nursery at Home Depot, I have that reinforced. Am I saying these are good buys today? No, I'm saying you have to determine that for yourself. I bought them for a song. And I'm telling you, when the market drops, you get those opportunities. But only if you get out first. If you hold your investments on the way down, you can't afford to sell them to buy something else when it's down there. At least psychologically, it's very hard to do. Where if you bail at the top, when you start seeing these, these uh, real good opportunities, and I'll also tell you, I do have some mutual funds again now uh, that I bought when the market was pretty pretty low. I do not have all my money there, and I would not have all my money there. But they're a good investment vehicle. Every investment has an advantage, or it wouldn't exist. An annuity and a fixed annuity, two different things, have advantages. Lifetime annuities have advantages. But you don't put everything into a lifetime annuity. That's craziness. It's one component of a portfolio. I also want to talk to you right now about... Um, IRAs and 401ks. Uh, let's leave them as one thing and call them retirement accounts, and let's first talk about Roth versus conventional. And I'm going to tell you that Roth is always the answer. Roth is always the answer. One more time, Roth is always the answer. The next time you hear this from a financial advisor, well, you see, if you go with a conventional uh, IRA, you get to deduct your taxes on them today while you're in a higher income bracket. And when you retire at a lower income tax bracket, you'll be paying taxes on a, that tax bracket versus today's tax bracket. So you'll come out ahead. Cup your right hand, okay, so that it makes kind of a little spooled depression, right? So the fingers are curled in a little bit, the thumb's nice tight against the hand. Big old slap right in the freaking ear. That's what the guy needs, because he's wrong, 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 wrong. Every time wrong, unless you're 55 years old or older, wrong. Every time. Go get a calculator that compares Roth IRA to conventional IRA. I'll try to find one for you today. And take any age under 55 and try to break that formula. And based on current tax rates, the Roth 
always, always, always wins. Always. Even with low rates of return around 5%, the Roth always wins. Because over time, the interest earned on an account that's held for 20, 30 years or more always outweighs the contributions. Okay? So, let's start with, let's back up. What's the difference between a Roth and a conventional IRA? Conventional IRA, I, I, uh, I put $2,500 into it this year. I don't pay any tax on that $2,500. When I'm 59 and a half or older, I begin to withdraw from that account. I pay tax on every penny that comes out of the tax, uh, from the account as earned income. So I pay tax on the, the, the investment portion, and I pay tax on the profit. If I have a Roth IRA and I put $2,500 in it today, I pay tax on the $2,500. I don't get a deduction for it. Fifty-nine and a half, and I start to draw money out, I can take every single penny of that money that I want, and I never, ever, ever pay income tax on any of it, ever. If I let it sit for another 10 years till I'm 70 before I start pulling money out of it, I don't pay tax. At some point, they start making me take money out of it. But they can't tax me on it. At least not the way things work today. So that Roth, Always, always, always works better. Place Dave Ramsey and I, by the way, very, very much agree on. Absolutely Roth. Now, problems with 401ks and IRAs. It's your money, but you can't get to it without severe penalty. By the time you're done, getting your money out of these investment vehicles ends up costing you close to half of it. It's not really half. Everybody says that. I know it's not really half. People have gotten mad at me for saying that. But it feels like half. It's a lot. It costs you a lot to get your own money back. It's put aside for retirement. It's also regulated by the government. More regulated than just about any other type of money that you still own. Okay? Uh, tax money is higher regulated. Money that the bank is holding that's not your deposit is highly regulated. But if for money that you actually have your name on, it might be the most highly regulated money in the world, IRAs and 401ks, conventional or Roth. The government is kicking around ideas right now about seizure of IRAs and 401ks. Seizure of a portion of them. But not seizure where the government says we're taking it. Where the government says we're going to say, okay, you're retiring with a half a million. You can do whatever you want with 400000 We're going to take 100000 we're going to put it into a lifetime annuity, which is actually government bonds, and make sure that you're going to get a check for the rest of your life because we want to make sure that you don't end up penniless. Or change how much you can withdraw or under what circumstances. There's all types of things that can be changed. Now, let me give you the illusion. Remember, I talk a lot about illusion the government does. They're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Not that way. Now, some people out there are getting really mad right now. You're throwing things. You're like, Obama's going to steal my retirement account. I know he is. I saw a banner on Lou Rockwell, and it was Obama in an Uncle Sam, uh, Uncle Sam costume. And I said, I want your. I know it's going to happen. No, it's not. Stop. Listen. I'll explain it. Okay. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to set up this new type of retirement, and they're going to go in and they're going to make changes to Roth IRAs and conventional IRAs and Roth. 401ks and conventional 401ks for new money and new programs. They will grandfather all the existing money. They have to. There will be blood in the streets of Washington, D.C. if they try to grab any of the existing money that came in under any of the current rules. So why save a rattle that they might just maybe go after it? So everybody gets angry and everybody freaks out. And then everybody swallows the pill. Well, this is only new money. It's okay. Where if they just came out with this new plan, 
to change things going forward, people would revolt. People will accept it because it's a softer tyranny than the tyranny they expected. Please understand when you see anything from your government, investment, economy, or otherwise, that it looks way of an overreach. Somewhere 10 degrees, 20 degrees back from that overreach is the real goal. That's how you get it done. That's how you get people to accept it. That's how you get, in the state of Texas, people to accept making a road into a toll road run by North Texas Tollway Association. You say, we're going to sell this toll road to Spain, right? People freak out and say, NTTA should be doing this. And the state of Texas goes, okay, okay, you win, and you got a new toll road. Or if they just said, we're going to have a new toll road, people would have snapped out. Then, a few months later, you sell a different road to turn it into a toll road to Spain. And because people think it already happened, they don't even pay attention, and you get both new roads as toll roads, one owned by Spain, one owned by the NTTA, because you were misdirected while the magician was pulling the coin out of your ear. So what's going on with retirement accounts. One way or another, though, the thing to take away from that is in a retirement account, there's always that potential for government to change the rules. So it's not a place to not put money, but you damn sure don't put all your money there. The next thing I want to talk about is gold and silver for a bit. And uh, I was going to talk about options, but we're up at 40 minutes today, and puts and calls are hard to understand, so we'll reserve that for another show. So gold and silver, what I put in the show notes today is they don't always glitter, but they usually do. Let me explain what I mean by that. People believe if I buy and hold gold, I simply cannot lose. That myth has been perpetrated so much so lately, and we've watched gold go from you know, $300 an ounce to over $1,200 an ounce in a relatively short period of time. All while conventional investments have declined a lot, so it feels like that's true. But it's not always true. There are points in time where you could have lost a lot of money on gold. Uh, around 1979, 1980, gold spiked up to around $700 an ounce. And today, with gold sitting up around 1200 bucks, just a little bit under right now, it looks like, hey, that worked out. I mean, your money doubled between 1979 and 2010. Not a huge return over that long a period of time, but overall it worked out. Well, here's the funny thing. By 1982, the price of gold was down to $450 an ounce from its previous high of $750 an ounce. And all the way into about 2005, gold was trailing below or at $450 an ounce. So had you bought a lot of gold at $550, $650, $700 an ounce in 1980, you would have had to sit on it for almost 30 years before you could even sell it for what you paid for it. Gold doesn't always work out. Of course, that was during... Uh, the other way to look at this, though, that bounce between 78 and 82, that big peak and valley in there, came, up, came about during the end of the recession of the 70s, Ronald Reagan inflating the currency, uh, and coming off of the gold standard and seeing the inflation and investors overrunning to the gold market. Another thing happened in there uh, right around the, the early 80s. There's a couple of guys known as the Hunt Brothers that tried to corner the silver market and that drove up all the metals. So if we take that spike out, then what we see is up to about 1979, 
Gold is flat and going up a little bit, goes up a little bit more, stays flat, holds its value against inflation throughout the 80s and the 90s, and then about 2002 takes a dramatic turn up turn and never looks back. Point being, gold can have huge returns and it can also have great hedges against inflation. But when it's driven up during a crisis, it represents a risk. That's why I'm not buying a lot of gold right now. We're in the middle of a crisis, and this is a big spike in gold. Now, I felt that way when gold was 950 an ounce. Now, if gold went down to about $850, $900 an ounce, I might be screaming buy again. Uh, but right now, sitting up here, eleven hundred, eleven fifty, I see this it's similar to the to the you know nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty era. This is a a little bit of an artificially inflated hedge. Eventually, I think two thousand dollar gold is in the picture. I just don't see it short term. But it's up to you to make your choice. What I'm saying is, you can't buy just gold and silver, put it in a box, and be sure you'll never lose money. But I think if you're looking at long-term money, it's one of the safest places for your, in, for your money. Safe being that you won't lose. Not necessarily you'll get a better rate of return than other investments. Investments come with generally a risk-reward ratio. The greater that you're at risk, the higher the potential for return, though that's not always true. Though financial liars often explain it that way, there is some level of truth to every myth. And there's some level of truth to that. The more secure your money, generally the less return you're going to make on it. Because when people want money that's at risk, they know they have to pay more to get it. In other words, if you told me you wanted to build a house, and you wanted to build a $100,000 house, and you had an awful lot of money in the bank, and you just wanted to borrow the money so you could keep your cash and pay me back over time, I might be very happy in a conventional mortgage to do 5% interest with you. If you had no money and that's why you needed to borrow the money and you were building a house in a neighborhood that I saw to be at risk and you wanted me to loan you that $100,000, I might want more interest than I can charge you legally before I would be willing to give you the loan. So if I went, well, if the guy paid on it for five years, I'm close to par. Everything after that's, and that's how investors look at money, folks, big investors. How long will it take me to get my, my initial principal back how long can I expect the return to last? When will the investment crap out? There's always a death to every investment. Very few investments, really, especially in the risk markets, reach maturity. It's how long can I ride this relatively safely, and how can I hedge by investing in other things at the same time? You have to start thinking a little bit like this yourself. If you don't, you're going to be in that kind of nebulous, just walking through society uh, world. Let's also talk about metal stocks versus actual metal. Buying stock in gold or stock in silver uh, versus uh, actually owning the gold and silver. A metal stock is not buying, that's not paper gold or paper silver or paper platinum or paper palladium. Generally a stock might hold, um, or a stock might be like in a gold mining company. So if the gold price goes up, that stock value might go up even more than the gold went up especially if the mine is mining lots of gold and finding more, and they believe they have higher reserves because the stock price is based on the company's future value, not its value today. That's why you see stock prices where the stock looks way too low for the company. Investors are saying, we don't believe in the future of this company. Or you see stocks where the price of the company is way higher than the current value of the company, and you're looking at price-to-earnings ratios there. 
Okay, um, that's what a price-to-earnings ratio is. It's either positive or negative for the company. And when you see a high PE, that means that investors believe that two years, three years, five years from now, this company is going to be worth way more than they're paying for it today, or they wouldn't buy it at that price. Sometimes the investors are right, sometimes and many times the investors are wrong. So when you look at gold and silver mining stocks and many other stocks, and even some gold and silver mutual funds, that's generally what you see. A lot of times a gold mutual fund or a metals mutual fund will have 20% of its assets in gold and or silver or gold and or plat or gold or whatever, right? Whatever that fund is built around. But the other 80% might be invested in ETFs, which we'll get to in a second. Some of it might be invested in one mining company, another mining company, maybe a company that's a distribution company for gold and silver or a refining company. So just like your conventional mutual fund will spread your risk out against a lot of companies. A gold or silver fund will attempt to spread that risk out in the metal sector amongst people within the sector. Again, distribution, refinement, mining, uh, maybe even jewelry. All right, so that's that is the way a stock uh, a stock fund for gold and silver works. Then there's something called an ETF. Uh, ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. Now, when you get into ETFs, there are also things uh, that are called uh, CEFs, which are closed-end funds, uh, and ETNs, which are exchange-traded notes. These are not the same thing as an ETF. They're often talked about in conjunction. Again, we've gotten along with the show already. I'm not going to go into those two today. But an ETF is the most common, exchange-traded fund. ETFs are basically paper gold or paper silver. The fund is sharing. Uh, the fund is selling shares in itself. Underlying those shares are at least reported to be and should be physical gold, physical silver, physical whatever the ETF is based on. And you can have ETFs that are based on just about any commodity that's storable long term. Doesn't have to be gold or silver, but that's the most common is gold ETF or silver ETF or gold and silver ETF. So what that's basically doing is it's buying gold and silver without actually having to take delivery of it. You're holding a share in a reserve. And then you can sell your share in that reserve in the future. Advantages. If you're buying a lot, it's a lot easier. Security. Um, as long as there's not market manipulation going on, there's been some severe silver and gold market manipulation going on. Things that should have people in jail lately, I've talked about that in the past. Maybe I'll talk about it again in the future, but just know there are shenanigans that go on. You can't really touch it. You can't really see it. It's somewhere else. It's in London often. So you're sitting here owning gold without ever actually being able to put your hands on it. Very quick and easy to sell, though. If the price goes way up and you want to sell it, you don't have to put it in a suitcase or you know strap it to your body and go down to a, an exchange and, and haggle with somebody. There's a market price for it. You write a sell order through your broker and done, the money's there. It's converted to cash. You want to buy it back and it drops, you buy it back. Don't have to leave your house. Click, point, buy, click, point, sell. Easy. Disadvantage. 100% traceable and trackable back to you by the government. No anon anonymous uh, components whatsoever, like buying a stock or doing anything else in your checking account. Completely traceable, completely trackable back to you, which means you will absolutely have to pay taxes on 100% of it, period. But, hey, 
It does. It is what it is. Like I said, any of these things have an advantage. Disadvantage. You don't have it physically. If you had to leave the country, you would have to go somewhere to gain access to it. And again, there's no anonymity behind it. If you were holding 20 ounces of physical gold, right? We're talking about what 25,000, 26,000 dollars in value right now. But in a very small, I mean, you carry that in a tube. You go anywhere in the world, you have the physical metal. You can exchange it for a currency just about any place out there. So it's not necessarily you would go barter with your gold. When you got to wherever you were going, whether you needed dollars or euros or francs or yen or rupees or rubles, whatever it was, you could exchange it for that. You could exchange it for it almost instantly in any nation on earth. That's one of the values of the physical metal. Two, you can look at it. You can see it. You can touch it. So am I saying you should have physical and no ETFs or physical and no stocks? No. I'm saying that physical gold or physical silver or both has a place in your investments because it has an advantage. And the greater you can spread your risk in the most solid investments but understand each investment, the better that you'll be able to do. Because I'm not saying not to have any mutual funds either. I'm just saying you don't throw money at them every single month on autopilot and never think about it and think I'm going to retire a millionaire. It doesn't happen. Those commercials with the two old people carrying their flip-flops with their pants rolled up to their knees on the beach almost never happen. And when they do, they don't happen because the guy worked a blue-collar job and listened to the financial liar that's driving the jalopy car because he has no idea what he's doing with his own money, let alone yours. And just autopilot invested money. It doesn't happen that way. And if you think it does, go visit some people that are 75 right now and see how it's working out for them. See how it's working out for them. Go talk to some people that are 55 right now looking at that retirement. Ask them how that's working out for them. And if they were the autopilot people, it doesn't happen. So I just really want people to think about what they're doing. Let's talk about real estate for a bit. Real estate is not low risk in of itself, but it can be. People thought real estate was like the greatest thing in the world that created the housing bubble, and a lot of people lost their asses, and there's no other way around that. And there are houses that were selling for $300,000 four years ago that you can literally not give away today. Even though the house is selling for $25,000, it's got a tree growing through the roof now, and it's in the middle of a place where it's a war zone. And there's environmental things that the person that buys it's going to be responsible for, and no one will touch it. There are other houses that were selling for sixty, seventy thousand dollars three years ago that are being purchased for five thousand dollars today and bulldozed to the ground, and people are putting in urban farms with them. Real estate can and does go down. Whenever I hear somebody say to me, "I'm buying a house and I'm not worried because real estate always goes up," it scares the hell out of me. Not because they're making a bad investment. They might be buying a great property in a great area at a great price where even if there is a recession, they have very low chance of losing much money or maybe won't lose any money even if there is a recession. They can still get out with a little bit of profit if they buy smart. But clearly, if they're buying smart, it's by accident. Not because they've paid attention and know what they're doing. Because the belief that real estate in of itself will be safe and they will always go up is what led to the housing bubble. That and easy credit. And free money for people who could never pay it back. But you can only blame the banks so much. 
the people that signed the freaking mortgages and agreed to pay them back. They didn't buy it because uh, it'll be all, you know, uh, they didn't buy it because it was easy to get the money. They bought it because they believed if I buy it today, even though it seems very expensive, it's going to be more expensive tomorrow, and I won't be able to afford to buy tomorrow. But if I buy today, I could always sell tomorrow and pull that money out and buy an even bigger house for the same payment. I've got to get started somewhere. And that was the sale that was made by loan officers and real estate agents all over the country. And financial advisors helped out. And financial advisors came in and said, you're worried about excess cash? Don't stop your contributions. God willing, you would cut my, my, uh, my commission. Hey, I'm relying on your portfolio to grow so I can get some money. No, no, no. Take a home equity loan. And I had more than one financial advisor tell me that when I was worried about shoring up cash reserves. Oh, you got lots of equity. I, I, I paid for it and I want it. This is the crap that goes on out there. Real estate, I've given you my thoughts before. I believe the safest investment is good quality rural real estate. It does not appreciate in value the way that some suburban real estates do. But it doesn't decline either. It really doesn't. I believe the safest investment with real estate for you is a house that you would gladly live in for the rest of your life. Because it doesn't matter if the value goes up or down if you don't want to sell. What matters is, can you afford to live there? Does it give you what you need, and can you make it produce for yourself? So your primary real estate investment should be the place you want to be for the rest of your life. The starter home, move up crap is bullshit. Find what you want today. This is one of the greatest times ever in the history of America to be looking for real estate. It's hard to get a loan on some, some ways, but if you can't get a loan today, you're not ready for one. That's reality. Money is still very, very inexpensive. They could say whatever they want about mortgage rates resetting and everything. These are some of the lowest rates in the history of mankind right now. Property is undervalued and property is in surplus. If you want to expand a home, find a home with property that can be expanded without selling it and trading it and moving again. Put down some roots with your real estate. Find the place you really want to be. If you want other real estate for investment, that's fine. Start with what's going to provide for you forever. Our country prospered at a time when a husband and wife went and bought a little house and said, this isn't going to be enough for our three kids, but we don't have any kids yet. And they got by with the first kid, and then dad and some neighbors built an addition. And they slowly made the house bigger, and the house grew with the family. America prospered that way. There's a reason. You know, I've been through three houses in, in about 12 years because I've had to, because I've had to move, and this really isn't what I want, and you know, short-term thinking, and but I've also purchased that long-term place to live. But the other side of it is, I'll drive by. There's a house that I used to own less than a mile from where I live today, and I drive by, and in that front yard is a pecan tree that I planted when my son was a little guy and as tall as the tree. And that pecan tree is huge today. And there's a peach tree there that's enormous that has trunks that are bigger than the, 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 uh, the thigh, my thighs. And those things that I invested in are now being partaken by somebody else. And I don't resent that person for that, but on some levels I, it makes a point to me, hey, if we had picked a place, I could have a hell lot more of those trees right now. And not just trees, other things as well. These are things to think about with real estate investing. It's not just about flipping and, and renting and things like that. Now, if you want to be a landlord, 
there's good money to be made in real estate. There's been more millionaires made with that than anything else. It's hard work, it ain't easy, and there is risk. And the government is a pain in the ass all the way through it. And you need professional help if you're going to do this. You need a good attorney. You need a, uh, a, good, a good, solid real estate advisor. You actually need two attorneys. You need an attorney that specializes in real estate. You need an attorney that specializes in finance. And you need a damn good CPA. If you don't have that, at least that team around you, then real estate investing is a bad idea. It really is. And you need to get to a point where you're smart enough that somebody else does the day-to-day -day crap for you so that you have a leasing agency company that takes care of all the crap and they just send you a check every month and you build underlying value in the property. And it's still at risk because you're going to be holding properties that during a, a crash of the economy are going to decline in value. It's not the place I put my money. Just not. Don't have anything against it. But that's the other side of it. That's the side that the late night TV commercial for no money down doesn't tell you about. By the way, those commercials are bullshit too. All right, buying property with no money down is very hard to do, especially as an investor. And you, you get these courses and they tell you things like, you can get no money down by uh, borrowing the money from your uncle. That's not no money down. It's going to a family and asking, asking for money as part of an investment. So... Really think before you just decide that... What I'm trying to get across today, I guess the most important thing is, no one investment is right for all of your, your, all of your needs. You have to spread your risk and you have to understand the investments. And if nothing else, hold cash. Yes, inflation will eat away at it. But it's better to hold cash while you make a determination of the right investment for a portion of it and lose 2% to inflation while well, you take your time to find the right investment, then to go into an investment you don't understand and in the same period of time lose 30%, and that's what happens to people. And greed, almost reverse greed, is what causes this. You look and you go, oh, I only made 2% last year. Inflation was 2%. I broke even. This guy made 18. I'm losing. You didn't lose 18. You kept what you had. You've done okay. Understand your investments before you make them. It's the most important thing you can do. Individual uh, responsibility for your own investments. Real quick on uh, foreign currencies, not really all that great, not really all that bad uh, either. One of the most stable currencies out there to me because they stayed out of the EU has been the Swiss franc. Uh, if I had purchased Swiss francs in 2005 uh, and held them till today, the dollars declined about 25 cents in that period of time, 25% return, that would have worked out. Uh, it's also been the case where during that period of time, uh, the dollar strengthened. And the dollar strengthening right now and coming back against the Swiss franc. And that's one of the best ones out there for long-term holding if you're going to hold a long-term currency, at least as long as these guys stay out of the EU. By the way, the application for Switzerland into the EU uh, was preempted by a movement inside Switzerland, but it's still open. It could still happen someday. And the thing that I, I fear for Switzerland right now is all the crap that's going on around them, pulling them down with it. I mean, they stood through world wars and, and, and came out shining on the other side. We'll see if they can keep doing it. But that's one of the places I would consider holding some foreign currency uh, right now. And one of the few, honestly, because they have so much autonomy. Um, it's, it's hard to, to play the currency market as just a hold strategy. It, it, it's, it's tough because the currencies float against each other. And what we have to realize is that the next economic crisis will probably be global. 
eventually some winners will rise on the other side. And if the United States keeps doing our stupidity, we won't be one of the winners. And I guess if you held it through the crisis, if you picked a winner on the other side, you could come out way ahead. I think gold's a better, a better and safer play for that because gold doesn't rely on being with one of the winners. It will be a winner in that scenario. And it may even be the point where gold will lose in one country but win in another. And at least you have that option. Again, and you have it during the crisis, and it can be used during the crisis if necessary, where a currency is probably going to require you to hold it through the crisis. Ron Paul agrees with me on this. He's, he said during the next crash, holding foreign currencies won't do anything for you because we're all tied in together as a global economy right now. If the United States economy collapses, there's not a lot of places in the world where their economy is not going down too. And I don't mean a collapse like we just saw. I mean a real collapse. So I'm not big on foreign currencies. A little bit here and there, I guess, if you want to, is kind of a novelty is okay. But I would not risk your retirement uh, or even your short-term future on foreign currencies. I know there's Forex traders that do well. Again, I'm not a trader. I'm not a trader. I'm not saying it's a terrible investment. I'm just saying it's not a magic bullet. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And as long as currencies are floating against each other, um, there's a potential for one to drag the other down with it. And as long as currencies are artificially pinned to each other, if you're holding a pinned currency, you get no real change when the market floats uh, elsewhere. So you, you have to understand that, again, no magic bullets. What I want to finish up on today, though, is food. And I mean food stored in your home. I don't mean commodities like corn and soy and wheat uh, in contracts. When you store food in your home or you invest in things that will produce food out of your backyard, the little chicken coop, the little garden plot, uh, the long-term production systems like grapes and kiwis and fruit trees and nut trees, that's the most safe investment you can make. I promise you, as long as you're breathing, you're going to need to eat. And if you have food, you're supplying that need. The price of food has always gone up as the value of money has always gone down since the creation of inflation in the United States uh, when we created the Federal Reserve System. Food is the safest investment you could ever make. Now, where is the limitation of food? You can only invest in food so much. Even with a big homestead and a lot of storage space and a lot of long-term storage stuff and being prepared for the apocalypse, a year is a tremendous amount of food to store. There's, and if you, if you are debt-free and you're saving your money and you're investing smartly, you probably have, at some point, a surplus where you either run out of space for the food or you run out of what you consider reasonable need for the food and you want to invest in other things. So food has an upside limitation. You can only invest in so much of it if it's for personal use and personal consumption. But until you reach that point, it's the safest money you'll ever spend. Because I promise you, when... Today's food runs out and you tap into tomorrow's reserves, you're going to consume it. And it's going to be there for you. And it will protect you through disasters, whether they're individual that impact your finances, or whether they're global in scope or anything in between. Food is the safest investment. That's why it's one of the core tenets of modern survival uh, preparation. There's a lot of things that we do as modern survivalists. Protecting our money is what we talked about today. But ensuring that we're going to be able to eat, drink, and be uh, covered by shelter tomorrow is the key and the most important. The money is a means to that end. When we look at food and we look at personal real estate and we look at things like wells and water filtration systems, we're making the investment where it belongs, closest to home. So that's where I think you really need to, to look at investing 
first before you start worrying about a lot of investing into any kind of conventional and unconventional investments. I think you should be investing a little bit all the time, though. I really do. I don't have, again, I don't have a problem with mutual funds. If you're investing and contributing to a mutual fund right now, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying, pay attention. Pay attention. Either I'm right about the false recovery or I'm not. But sooner or later, whether I'm right, wrong, or completely wrong, there'll be another market drop. And there'll probably be all kinds of bells and whistles going off if you pull your head up out of the sand to see before it happens. Bail before it happens. That's all I'm saying. Additionally, I'm going to tell you, the most important thing I can tell you today is don't be afraid to hold some cash. I hear from people all the time, they're freaked out. I'm holding cash and I'm afraid of hyperinflation. Um, okay. Uh, just like when markets crumble, there's huge indicators that it's about to happen. And even when it starts to happen, it, it's not overnight, boom and gone. There's a slide. Wait till you start to see the slide before you freak out too much. Have some money invested in gold and silver. That'll make you more comfortable holding cash. I get the emails from people that say things like, Jack, I have $20,000 in cash right now. I think I should put it all in gold. No! No, because remember, gold can be manipulated. If you... Uh, you know, uh, be diverse with it. Keep ten thousand in cash. Put five thousand in gold. Figure out what to do with another five thousand. Maybe put it into a CD, staggered CD. You know, there's simple things to do to maximize investments. Let's say, let's say you had three thousand dollars just to make it it simple, and you wanted to get the maximum return on a CD that you possibly could, which is generally a three-year CD, but you didn't want to tie all the money up for three years. You want to be able to get at least a third at any point, no more than a year away. What you would do, take your 3000 split it into $1,000 each. Buy a one-year CD, a two-year CD, and a three-year CD. When the one-year CD becomes mature, turn it into a three-year CD. When the two-year uh, CD becomes mature, turn it into a three-year CD. You now have three CDs earning the highest uh, return you possibly can with short-term CDs like that because you're tying the money up for three years as far as the bank's concerned. But one-third of your money is always no more than one year away. There's a lot of things you can do. Just educate yourself and be creative. But do not, for the love of God, do not be afraid to hold some cash. What we learned in Argentina was that people that held some cash made out better than people that didn't hold any at all. Again, there's room for everything. Cash should be as much a part of your investments as stocks, bonds, mutual funds, gold, real estate, food, all of it. There's a place for all of it. So please, as you start to, you know, like pay off your debt and all of a sudden have surplus cash, it's not a problem. It's a good thing. Be happy about it. So with that, I am going to go ahead and wrap up. Hopefully today's show was educational. Hopefully it made you think. Hopefully it pulled back the veil of uh, idiocy that's behind a lot of the conventional investing advice out there. Uh, as far as what you should do with the information you've got today, evaluate your life and your goals and see where you're going. And think allocation. If you've realized, hey, I'm, I've got a lot of money in mutual funds and I'm not comfortable with that, Convert some to cash. Convert some to gold. Convert some to silver. Talk to an advisor and find an advisor that will work with you this way. I'll tell you what I want to do. You tell me how to do it with the least problems with uh, legal or financial or uh, tax consequences. And you might find out that you're much better off talking to a CPA uh, in conjunction with a broker for this 
than a typical financial advisor who's going to want to steer you back to, hey, 10% and just keep doing it and dollar cost average and all the things you've learned that are total bullshit if they're left to themselves and is one component today. And those, fi- I'm going to warn you as I sign off, those, those financial advisors will do a great job telling you that we can talk about all those other things eventually, but you'll never get around to that conversation. It will always be deferred because they don't know how to handle it. You can handle it. You can be responsible and empowered for your own money. My final, final thoughts today, look, I'm, I did this show because I am tired of dependency in the United States. It's not enough now that we're dependent on our systems of support from corporations and government for energy, for food, for medicine, and a million other damn things. No, in the last 50 years, we've even become dependent on somebody to tell us what to do with our own money, with our own earnings, with our own assets. We need to be empowered to know what we want those things to do for us, and we need to make our own decisions and our own choices. The scary part is, when you make your own decisions and something goes wrong, you get the blame. The upside is, you will never make as many mistakes as people that don't really care what happens to you. No one cares as much about you and your family as you, and no one cares as much about you and your money as you. Your financial advisor doesn't really care. He doesn't. I don't care if you play golf with him. He's not going to make your mortgage payments for you. If you lose your job and your investments fall apart on the same day, it's not going to happen. You're the one that's going to have to make those mortgage payments no matter what happens. You're the one that's going to have to put food on the table no matter what happens. Take responsibility for your investments, for your money, and above all, take responsibility for your survival. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Sounds good to Or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're leaving.